Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. An Erio's original. An Erio's original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we have a very special double feature. We'll be speaking to two guest experts. First, we'll be speaking with activist Kalpona Akhtar, She is an activist for garment factory workers and workers' rights in Bangladesh. She's the founder and executive director of the Bangladesh Center for Worker Solidarity. She'll be speaking to us about the Dhaka garment factory collapse, as well as her fight for worker rights in Bangladesh. And stay tuned for the second half of this episode. We'll be speaking with Dr. Rachel Shelton, Associate Professor of American History at Penn State. We'll be discussing with her the election of 1876. And now, our conversation with activist Kalpona Akhtar. Hi, Kalpona. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm glad that I could join with you. Hi. <laughs> Same. Hi. It is a real honor for us to have you on the show, so thank you. Uh, now, you have a very uh, personal connection to your activism. I, I know that you started working at a a garment factory at a very young age. Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your experience? Yeah, I started working in the factory, in garment factory in age of 12. And I had to go to the factory or choose the job. 
because my father was the primary earner in the family and he got ill. So there was no one who can bring food in the table. And we were five siblings and uh, our parents. So we were in seven in the family. So after me, it was my, it, it was my 10 years old brother who joined uh, in the factory as well. So two of us was the breadwinner for family and a little money for my dad medical. The condition or experience in those days, definitely that was brand new because I went to the factory previous day and uh, next day I went to the factory. I didn't see that many people together except our annual sports in the school. (laughs) (laughs) So, and, uh, you know, the most important, I never heard the sound, like the machine sound together. Uh, Though our house was very close to the airport, but you can hear that sound, like the airplane sound, but that's not like constant. But when I entered in the factory, it was very constant sound and that hurts your ears. And top of that, I never saw that adults shout on the adults or children, those are working in the factory, uh, which is completely a verbal abuses. I never heard that, uh, you know, never heard that slang that they use against to the workers in the factory. So like first impression, I was about to cry. Uh, that was my first experience. And then, you know, I, as I, I don't have any, didn't have any choice, so I had to keep working. So experience, it was a longer shifting hour, uh, 14 to 16 hour shift was very common, uh, very, very common. And we would need to even work overnight and sleeping like a few hours in the production floor. And working over 400 hours of, uh, you know, work over the month wow. and making only $6. So that was, wow. the yeah. And verbal physical abuses was very common. Like I joined as a sewing machine helper and all the long shifting hour, I need to stood in my feet and work, you know, whole day. So it was so uh, difficult. It was so hurting. It is so inhuman. And sexual abuses was there as well. Unhygienic toilet. There wasn't any clean water to drinking. Um, and top of that, no one has voice. There wasn't any safety in the factories. So I worked in few factories become, because before I, uh, you know, fired and blacklisted. The every factory's condition was same. And it is not that two of us, me and my brother, was only children work was working in the factory. It is like. 60% of worker was children. And the youngest one I can remember, he was just seven years old. Uh, yeah. And when he would be coming to the factory, he's still like, you know, uh, sleepy. And he would be coming to me and saying, the sister, I'm sleepy. Sometime I would be like putting him in a clothing box so he can sleep like two more hours and then start working. So, yeah, that was experience. So you got paid uh, $6 do- uh, per month is what you said. Yes, uh, it was including overtime. So it's a $6 uh, including overtime, the monthly payment. And the work working hour was over 400 hours. That's incredible. And, and I'm assuming, was that even enough to support yourself at the time? No, not at all. It wasn't enough for support. You know, it wasn't enough for one person full month cost. So like two of our salary barely can bring food in the table for weeks or two. Uh, 
so it was a difficult life. Yeah. What made you shift from working at the factory to fighting for worker safety and fair wages? What, was uh, there something that happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was a momentum. So, you know, uh, the factory, uh, who still was paying us less, uh, they decided to pay us less than that for our overtime pay, which uh, we did not agree with. We said, no, this is, you cannot do. And it's not that I knew the law. It's not that <clears throat> I exactly know that how much I supposed to pay. It is because that was during festival month. It was Eid. And I had a plan with that money. I wanted to buy new clothes for my brother and sisters. So I said, no, you cannot do that. So <clears throat> we were um, about 1,800 workers in the factory. And there was a 92 worker and uh, 93 total uh, worker who was called for the strike. Uh, and those was the frontliner. And it was 92 men, and I was the only young female worker who joined with them. And we called for a strike. And uh, we stopped working. And, you know, there was a back and forth meeting with the management, and they tried to convince some of us. But everyone was, like, very strong and says, no, we'll be not. Uh, we were in the picket line. So we said, no, we will be not taking less than this. And finally, we own the strike, but management is still uh, coming with a condition that they will pay us less from the coming months. And we were fine with that because we didn't know how much we're supposed to pay. Right. So, yeah. And then, then we went for three days in vacation. So as soon as we came back, we saw that management started firing those workers who was the frontliner. So they listed them. So the first batch was like 26 of them who got fired. Luckily, that time I, my name wasn't there. But uh, those 26, I would say they were like smarter than me. Rather like, you know, <clears throat> going away, they started finding organization or some people who can help them so they can give a lesson to the factory. And they looking for a weeks and then ended up finding an organization which now call... Uh, American Center for International Labor Solidarity is an international wing for AFL-CIO, the American Union. So they had an office in Bangladesh. And that time they were helping a you know, union here and supporting them to give a level of training to the workers as well as uh, you know, giving a, a, you know, legal aid uh, help so workers can sue the factory owner in the labor court which was pretty new for my co-workers who fired. And they like they, they took that opportunity right away and they sued the factory owner and they came back to us and they told me that, hey, we sued the factory owner. And I was like, what the hell you were talking about? <laughs> what is exactly you have done? I mean, how can we fight with these rich people? And they were like, no, 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 there is a law. You know, we, I, we had a level of training and we learned so many things. And that was like another surprise for me. What is the level law exactly is? And they were like, oh, that is a, a training class. You should come. So I think two weeks later, they just, you know, forced me to come. And I came with them. So it was a like four-hour long training, which completely changed my life. And I consider this a second bone for me. Uh, in that training, first time, 
I understood the workers are human too. We're supposed to work eight hours. Uh, that is my general working hour. Uh, overtime should be voluntary and we, we should pay double for overtime. This is the first time I learned there is a minimum wage. I shouldn't be slapped in the production floor. There should be high and toilet. The working shift hour should not be that long. Uh, <clears throat> all these good things. My factory should be safe. And something beautiful I learned that I have right to organize and right to bargain. Wow. I can join with union. I mean, that is like blow my mind. Oh. And, you know, following morning when I went to the factory, it's like, you know, butterfly in my stomach. I just wanted to tell my coworker that what I learned, all these, you know, teenage friends I have. So I was like 14 plus then when I learned all these things. And we all together decided to uh, sign the union application and join union in my, fa- you know, uh, in my factory floor. And absolutely, everyone was agree with it. We faced a lot of problem, but we got almost 99% of union membership for that factory. And we submitted the application, but it got rejected. And then, you know, the management, from the day one, they started all the retaliation, harassment and intimidation uh, when we were organizing. But uh, when our union application got rejected, it took like a year and a half or so you know, from organizing to submitting. Yeah. And then finally, they were able to fire me and blacklisted me. So uh, I sued them in the in the labor court. And I started, you know, working in other factories as well. But soon as I joined in any other factory, they would be knowing very soon that who I am, I'm a troublemaker. Um. And I will be kicked out, or kicked out from that factory too. So it's like seven or so factory, they uh, kicked me out. I think that is the turning point that I understood that I need to do something bigger. And the union, like uh, the union whom the Solidarity ACILS was helping, uh, that name is big of Bangladesh Independent Garment Workers Union Federation. So they were helping us to uh, writing all the union paper and et cetera. So they saw a spark on me and they hired me as a union organizer. And later, I serve in their board as well. So I think that's the turning point. But you know what I consider? This factory owner shouldn't shouldn't have fired me from that factory. They they mistaken. Yeah, that was their big mistake. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, absolutely. They shouldn't do that. <laughs> so, um, how big of an industry is the garment industry in Bangladesh? Can you give us an idea? Sure. Yeah. The garment industry, you know, it's the biggest industry in the Bangladesh. It's a kind of like backbone of our economy right. uh, because it's, uh, it earns uh, 84% of our export income these days. So we have 4 million workers, uh, you know, nearly 4,000 factories that are across the country uh, where workers are working. So it is not only 4 million who just only involved in these jobs, there is, uh, there is a many backward linkers uh, industry as well who are involved in this industry. So, you know, it's the biggest one and backbone of our economies. And most importantly, it is women dance industry. So that matters. Uh, you know, what is the female to male ratio in the workplace? I know there's more women. Yeah, it is used to, it used to be uh, higher. It used to be like 85% women dance. Uh, but now, uh, you know, it is. It has been declined. So it is like close to seventy percent women and thirty percent male 
uh, are working in this industry. So it is women dominated, but it has been declined last few years. And mostly, you know, few reasons are there. One is automated machine. The second is the maternity leave and child care program is not enforcing the industry. And third, of course, the increasing of gender-based violence in the factories is one of the reasons that why women thinks to leave the industry and go back where they started from. What are some of the problems that you see happening between um, brands like bigger global fashion brands and factory owners that result in added pressure on uh, garment factory workers? How, how does our addiction to fast fashion play into this? Um, you know, when people ask me about the fast fashion, I always say in one word, uh, you know, two words. <laughs> or three maybe <laughs> it can <laughs> be first, as many as you want <laughs> yeah the fast fashion kills okay so it kills the you know it is tolling our workers lives in a long shifting long shifting hour because the lead time is only 18 days in between you know orders to uh, you know show these clothes in the high street so is putting our workers in a longer, longer shift, uh, longer, longing, long working shift with poverty wages. This is one. Second, it is killing our ecological system. Like country like us, who who are like we are one of the second largest apparel producing country, and we already use like next two hundred years water. Uh, because we are producing this clothes. For instance, like to produce one T-shirt, you need to use 14 liters of waters. So just think about how, how much it takes when you produce a pair of jeans. jeans. And we are uh, producing millions of pieces, T-shirt, the basic T-shirt, polo shirt, jeans, like all the cheap clothes. So once you shift them, country like in the western country like in europe in u.s or canada somewhere the people in the name of charity they buy the first fashion don't wash them don't reuse them what they do they dump those clothes in a name of charity where they comes country like us because you guys thinking that we don't have clothes so you are sending back to them so you are using as a dumping place too so the fast fashion do not help anyone except these brand and retailers, because they are the only people who get profit out of it. It is also kills, you know, the consumer's money as well. Like rather buying five t-shirts, why not buying one t-shirt that is reusable, which is sustainable and which has made, made in a, uh, in a place where the water treatment has done, which, not, which you know, the dying did not kill all the wild uh, things in the water or in the field, right? Uh, your field did not destroy it, so you cannot grow the vegetable or any crops. So also, uh, it has been made in a place where workers got their uh, living wage. They have union boys. They have safe workplace. They have a workplace which is gender-based violence-free. So a sustainable clothes can make, you know, ensure all those which a fast fashion can't. I know sometimes the consumers also don't understand this. Uh, they just think, oh, it is cheap. Right. But, you know, nothing is free. The cheap is not free. 
someone always need to pay for you know this ship and that someone is the worker that someone is the country like us who producing this so the consumer uh, you know the i mean I, we can start with the teenage consumer like who has seven winter coat now do you really need a seven winter coats how how many winter coat your grandma had one or maybe two and she made sure to pay the person enough and you know that use that coat for years maybe your mom has that so the consumers also need to understand that you know fashion that makes sense but it does not make sense that your fashion killing the people your fashion killing the land your uh, fashion killing the ecological system which is ultimately mother earth right if one side of the world hurts it will be hurts like other side of the world as well so we need to take care all together there is no doubt that we need the jobs that has been created for garment workers across the world especially in the production country but we want these jobs with dignity so we in our episode discuss the rana plaza factory collapse that happened in in 2013 uh, but I, i i understand that this is not the first industrial disaster to happen there were many many others um how commonplace are these were were they uh these industrial accidents at the time of rana plaza rana plaza is not the first one but this is the deadliest one in the april history right across the globe so uh, but there was a you know dozens or you know hundreds of uh, accident that has happened mostly fire accident and then factory collapse two three there was a two three or four factory collapse but the rana plaza was biggest in the country and before even rana plaza happened we have been shouting to uh, you know have our factory safe in the country and globally as well so we are being asking these brand and retailers to sign an agreement uh, which will be make sure that our factories are safe and workers are working in a safe place and these brand and retailers did not do that until 1138 workers died in that atra building uh they had to see these workers to die and then they you know they they signed so after that uh, a code on bangladesh fire and building safety has signed uh between global brands global unions and local uh, unions which has made a phenomenal change in the ground in last seven years and after record working in the country we see the industrial disaster but you know there is no death toll that i mean there is no significant death toll that you can uh, you know count in like in 2016 the death toll was zero so it's a, it's a huge change like till rana plaza when you see in a year you're losing 100 at least 100 workers and making that zero is huge uh, but accord had to you know leave the country middle of last year uh, now accord successor is rsc which is called rmg sustainable council uh, they are working it is uh, uh, boarded by the manufacturers brand and union which is locally and globally Uh, but we are not sure that it will be act like a court a court was independent uh, it was influence free 
but within RSC, there is a manufacturer. So we really don't know that how influence-free that would be. So we are looking forward to see how uh, the RSCs work in future. But uh, till RSC has been taken over the responsibility, we haven't seen any debt toll yet. Uh, one might be because of the COVID, you know, the factory doesn't have that many rush uh, that they used to have. So we still need to see that how this goes. Have any of those who were charged um, and arrested for their part in the tragedy, the, the Rana Plaza, have they been convicted or, or held accountable? No, not yet. It is like set part of uh, part of this country that, you know, power collusion between the business and uh, politics. This always give a path for the these culprits to, uh, you know, get them free. So, all these people who has been uh, arrested during uh, or after Rana Plaza uh, disaster. And also we should uh, remember another factory fire, which has just happened one, I think six months before uh, Rana Plaza, the Tazreen fashion fire, which has killed 112 workers. They just burned to ash. So both of these factory, uh, you know, owner, uh, building owner, they got arrested, but none of them being con- convicted. And for case of Rana Plaza, only the building owner, he himself in the custody, rest of them are free. So the guy who is in the custody, he has a very strong political you know, connection. So we really don't know that he, whether he will be convicted or not. But he must be, including the factory owner, because the workers, they saw the crack in the building. They shouted that to the management. They denied to go inside the factory, but they have been pushed, slapped, beaten, and forced and threatened by saying that if you don't go, then you will be not getting your salary f- uh, for this month. And workers cannot afford that. Uh, you know, they, they, they're just very hand to mouth. So they needed that money. So they went to. And the guy, the building owner, Rana, he says that, uh, you know, with the mic, he said uh, to the worker in that morning that this engineer has been checked to the building and the factory will be leased for 100 years. But, you know, it did not even list for 100 minutes. Uh, it just collapsed. So that guy should not be released for any any reason. He, he should get, uh, you know, convicted. He should be punished. Yes. Now... In our show, what what we do is we, you know, we talk about all the things that happened in in the uh, a disaster, and we kind of try we try our best to, in our opinion, figure out who's to blame. So, mm-hmm. um, in terms of the Rana Plaza, uh, if you had to pick someone or something, it could be a concept that is to blame for this terrible, terrible disaster, who or what would that be? Business in whole sense, okay? Uh, not, not one actor, but business is the first because all these brands has been uh, inspected, that factory. Their uh, so-called auditing system said that the factory is safe. I mean, how come? They got all so-called certification, this factory is safe. And how that certificate, you know, certificating company has been certified that. So the brand, of course, due to their greediness, they overlooked. They just, you know, uh, look into their all glossy reports that has been produced by this auditing company. The factory, they overlooked and let these workers die because they were rushed to their shipment and they want profit. 
And of course, the government, they shouldn't, uh, the government of our, our country, uh, they have responsibility too. They're supposed to monitor. They're supposed to look after the building code. How a building just, you know, um, built in a pond, which has been, you know, filled by the sand. I mean, how come? How come a building which has been approved for five story and they added like four more uh, floors and the, you know, the local engineer has not been seen that. So these three bodies are equally responsible, including all those so-called certifying and auditing company. So these are to blame. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress and anxiety we carry around as we go about our everyday life. At The Alarmist, we know it's always better to say it out loud and talk it through. Whenever I stress about the sinking of the Titanic, I don't sit with those thoughts in a dark room. I turn on the lights and dive right into it. Therapy is a great place to get things off your chest and work through what's really going on. Maybe you can't stop spiraling or catastrophizing. I started therapy over 10 years ago and never looked back. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Heck, we sometimes change our minds and rethink the verdict at The Alarmist. And that's also okay when it comes to therapists. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Alarmist today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Alarmist. 
Well, Kalpona, thank you so, so much for joining us today and really sharing your wealth of information. Thank you for everything you do. <laughs> so thank you. Very happy to be part of this. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to our guest expert, Kalpona Akhtar, for taking the time to speak to us. And now we're going to talk to Dr. Rachel Sheldon. She's an associate professor of history at Penn State, specializing in American history and the Civil War era. She's also the director of the Richards Civil War Center. Now let's hear what she has to say about the election of 1876. Hi, Dr. Sheldon. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Thanks for inviting me. I know that we have a lot to cover. I mean, we could probably all get a PhD um, (laughs) in this. (laughs) But uh, so we we wanted to start off kind of by asking, what was Abraham Lincoln's vision after the Civil War? And what was his plan for Reconstruction? And also, how did it differ then from uh, President Andrew Johnson? It's a little hard to know, because Lincoln didn't get a chance to implement it. Um, We know a little bit about what his wartime approach to Reconstruction was, important to think about what Reconstruction is, right? It's reconstituting the nation. Uh, The nation is breaking apart. And so the the term is really about bringing the um, Confederate states back into the Union. So during the war, Lincoln took something of uh, an approach that looks a little bit like Andrew Johnson uh, in the sense that he he offered pretty... um, easy terms for bringing states back into the union in large part because he wanted the war to end. So this was part of the idea, particularly early in the war. Um, But by the end of the war, Lincoln was very much in favor of um, emancipation, right? Because he had passed the emancipation or he had issued the emancipation proclamation and he had pushed through the 13th amendment, uh, which the house of representatives and the Senate had both voted on by the time of Lincoln's death. So he was in favor of the acceptance of the end of slavery. And he had also started to push for more black rights, which he had not been in favor of at the beginning of the war, uh, including suggesting shortly before he died that uh, black soldiers should have the right to vote. Um, But he he was not totally clear on what he wanted to do. Uh, And some congressmen were very dissatisfied with Lincoln's approach. Uh, They wanted a reconstruction that was much stronger. There were several wings of the Republican Party uh, in Congress at this time, so radicals in particular wanted stronger, stricter terms for bringing uh, Confederates back into the Union, and they were dissatisfied with Lincoln and initially were sort of optimistic that Johnson might have a better approach than Lincoln. So we're not totally sure what Lincoln would have done. Anyone who suggests they do, they're just sort of making it up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So so then how does Johnson handle it? So Johnson um, is a Southerner by birth. He was uh, born in Tennessee or lived in Tennessee and was the only uh, Southern Democrat to stay in the Union uh, at the time uh, serving in Congress. And so he's someone who is generally in, um, less sympathetic to equality with uh, Black Americans. He was, he was in support of um, emancipation and the eventual 13th Amendment, but he is really interested in making sure that the union comes back together quickly and with as little difficulty as possible. Uh, and so he quickly gets into a mess with Republicans in Congress, 
they really want to pass what they consider to be pretty standard uh, bills and have them signed by Johnson, Civil Rights Act, 1866, and the Freedmen's Bureau Act, 1866. And they, and they um, find that immediately Johnson is hostile to these. And this surprises the moderates in Congress who expect Johnson to sign these bills. And so they start to work with uh, radical Republicans to overtake Johnson's presidential efforts uh, and make Congress the center of Reconstruction. That's fascinating. Okay, so now we transition into Grant's presidency. How does does it change? I mean, he's a he's a Civil War hero. Um, how, how does Reconstruction then kind of get shaped? In those years, so Congress had been uh, running Reconstruction essentially since uh, early 1867 when they passed the uh, Military Reconstruction Acts, and these continue on into um, Grant's time as president. Uh, so Congress is still sort of running the show initially. Grant is in support of these programs. He was in favor of um, black equality. He's very much in support of um, keeping troops in various states. Although by the early in his presidency, several states have already been what they called redeemed. So Southern Democrats, white Democrats had taken back state capitals. They had become uh, white Democrat controlled. And so as a result, uh, Grant has sort of less power to control that. But, you know, there are moments in his presidency where there is massive violence that Grant responds to with strong uh, reaction, including sending more troops uh, when necessary. Uh, so example, the Colfax massacre that happens in Louisiana, he, init- he is very strongly responding to that and sending troops to Louisiana. But by the time of the end of his presidency, A lot of the troops had been withdrawn from the South. Uh, There was only sort of a small number left, and they were dispersed in such a way that they didn't actually have much power. Um, Where they were, they could be effective, but there were not enough to control what was going on in the entire uh, former Confederacy. His second, Grant's second term is then plagued with a lot of scandals, and it it puts the Republicans in a precarious spot when choosing their presidential candidate uh, for 1876 elections. Um, Why do they go with Rutherford B. Hayes? Yeah, so um, important to understand that in the 19th century, uh, uh, conventions worked very differently from how they do today. So (laughs) so totally differently. (laughs) You went into a convention not knowing who was going to be the presidential nominee from your party. Uh, It could follow a a predictable turn, but more often than not, somebody else was chosen from the front runner. Um, So this is true even in 1860 when Lincoln becomes the Republican nominee. William Henry Seward was the favorite going into that convention. And so, you know, it's it's always a matter of how it gets worked out on the floor. Uh, so Hayes is, Hayes is um, chosen in part because he had been a war hero. He was a he was a Union Army general. Uh, and also um, Ohio was an important state for the Republicans. And he had been governor of Ohio. Uh, and, and he emerges as uh, the winner of the nomination in part because there had been a splintering of the party over some of the other candidates. And you, of course, had to get uh, enough people behind you. So Hayes is he's a he's a prominent choice. People are not unhappy with him. Uh, but really, he's someone who 
um, emphasizes some of the Republican Party's most important policies, including in this period, uh, anti-Catholicism, which became a really big issue for Republicans and was actually a winning issue uh, in the 1876 election. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah. <laughs> so in contrast, the Democrats choose their presidential candidate, uh, Til- Samuel Tilden, uh, I guess relatively quickly dur- for, for convention standards. Yeah, it's surprisingly because you know the Democrats have a crazy rule where they have to get a two-thirds majority in their convention in order to nominate a candidate, which is so challenging. Uh, but they're able to get Tilden. And they do in part because, you know, New York is a critically important state and Tilden, the governor of New York, uh, he had a reform background. And so he was uh, expected to be a good candidate in terms of the reform issues. Hayes also was a pretty good candidate in terms of the reform issues. They both claimed reform. But there's something else that's really important here, and that is in 1872, there had been an upstart group that came from the Republican Party called the Liberal Republicans. Uh, And they had been a group that sort of challenged what the Republican Party was all about. Uh, A lot of it had to do with economics and the financial system. So both the Democrats and Republicans were very concerned about getting the votes from the liberal Republicans in the 1876 election. So they appealed to other kinds of issues uh, like the economy, because we, of course, had the uh, panic of 1873. And so the economy was really in the toilet and people were concerned about it. And anti-Catholicism and reform. So these are sort of the major issues in the North. uh, And these are the issues that really sort of divide uh, folks in terms of thinking about which party they want to be part of. One last thing about this election that's really important is that Hayes was successful in some places because he did something called waving the bloody shirt, uh, which was a method that Republicans used in the post-war period to point out how Democrats had participated in traitorous ways in the Civil War. Uh, And they pointed to some very real examples of this. When Democrats regained the House of Representatives just before this election, they fired a bunch of civil servants who were working in the House, uh, people like clerks, sergeant-at-arms, who had been union officers in the war, who had served in the Union Army, and they replaced them with former Confederates. So they were pointing to specific examples of how Democrats were supporting traitors. This was part of the uh, appeal. Wow. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So um, during the election, uh, how how did the Southern states... Okay, so now let's cut to the election, right? How do the Southern states engage in voter suppression against black men? And what were some of the methods that they used? Yeah, so the election in um, the Southern states is sort of the first time since the Civil War that you have full engagement or attempts at engagement in both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. And what I mean by that is that White Southerners are now reinstated, able to vote in elections. And so the Democratic Party is in full force with numerous former Confederates coming out to vote for them. And then the Republican Party has now enfranchised Black Americans in the South, and they are trying to participate in the election for the Republican Party. So Southern Democrats know this. 
and they engage in all kinds of white supremacist violence. Uh, they terrorize black communities. Even where there were soldiers stationed in these southern states near polling places, Grant sent uh, many soldiers to polling places, what would happen is these vigilante groups were basically an arm of the Democratic Party would prevent black voters from getting to the polls. Uh, so they would terrorize them outside their homes or on the way to these election places. Or they would threaten them uh, either economically or bodily uh, to, try, to try to make sure that they would vote for Tilden over Hayes. So it, it is actually a strong campaign of white supremacist violence that is perpetrated against black Americans. And in the testimony of the 1876 election that goes before um, the Electoral Commission, who I'm sure we're going to talk about in a minute, uh, they talk about how they have been prevented from voting for Hayes, either entirely or by forcing them to vote for Tilden. So let's go into the, uh, you know, election day and the counts. So Louisiana, South Carolina and Florida's electoral votes were being contested because of accusations of, of cheating. Um, I've, I, I have to be honest with you. I have a hard time when it comes to understanding the electoral process. I think a lot of our listeners do as well. And um, I read that there were conflicting sets of votes. Can you help us understand what happened here? Yeah, so what happens, you know, in, in terms of the vote, right, is that um, there is a popular vote that happens in your state, but um, as part of the Electoral College and under the 12th Amendment, right, um, you actually are voting for an elector, not voting for the president himself. Uh, and so what happened in each of these states is that there were votes for Republican electors and votes for Democratic electors. And there was a dispute in each of these three states about who had won. And so both states in their different political parties send votes to Congress to be counted. And the reason for this is that they are divided states. So they have a governor of one party and a legislature of another party. And so each group is able to, quote, certify. They're not really certifying, but what they're saying is they're certifying their votes and sending them to Congress. And then the question is, what happens? There is no stipulation in the 12th Amendment, which was guiding the circumstances at this point, uh, as to who counts the votes. They're just sent to the Senate, the president of the Senate, and then they are meant to be counted. So this puts Congress in a very confusing position. Uh, they, they're not sure what to do. <laughs> Interestingly, they had predicted this. They were very worried about the election. Uh, you know, 19th century elections were very complicated. Several had been contested before. Uh, some had ended up in the House of Representatives before. So it wasn't totally out of the question that this might happen. Uh, and so they had been worried about it and had been discussing how to deal with it. And what they end up doing is putting together this electoral commission made up of five members of the Democratic House, five members of the Republican Senate, and five Supreme Court justices. And there's a, you know, three Democrats uh, and two Republicans from the House, the opposite in the 
in the Senate. And then uh, what happens with the Supreme Court justices is really interesting. I mean, we, we try now to pretend as though Supreme Court justices are not partisan, but in fact, they were very partisan in the 19th century. It was an expectation that they would be. And so we get two Republicans and two Democrats identified as such. Uh, and then the third, the, the, they are asked to choose the fifth justice. Initially, they want to choose David Davis, uh, who was thought to be independent. Um, Davis was really skeptical of the constitutionality of the Electoral Commission, so he likely wouldn't have been interested in serving anyway. But in the meantime, uh, he resigns his position on the Supreme Court to become a senator from Illinois. Also not totally unheard of in the 19th century. Uh, totally different time. So they end up selecting uh, Joseph Bradley, who is also a Republican. Uh, and unsurprisingly, the votes are going to go eight to seven uh, in favor of Hayes on each of these three states. So now we did talk about the compromise of 1877 on our uh, first episode. Um, but in your article for the Washington Post, you state that this compromise actually is a myth that has been debunked by historians. What actually happened? Yeah. So, I mean, what happens really is that Southern Democrats are very angry about what the commission has decided. Their, their vote, the commission is voting uh, not who won the election, but which electors to count from these three states. Uh, and that ultimately gives Hayes the election. Uh, so, so Southern Democrats are upset and they're writing to Tilden repeatedly. We should fight this. We should bring it to court. Uh, we should engage in violence. Tilden himself was very concerned about violence and very concerned about restarting the Civil War, which was not a totally crazy proposition. And so he tells them, no, we're not going to fight this. He believed personally that he had won, but he accepted the results of the Electoral Commission. Uh, so there was no sort of compromise initiated. We, uh, we have heard this story before, and, and it's a prominent story. It's in lots of textbooks uh, about Southern Democrats and Republicans having this compromise by which um, the Republicans will take the remaining troops out of the South, out of the former Confederate states in exchange for uh, winning the presidential election. But this didn't happen. Uh, there were many troops who had already been removed from the South, and they stick around the troops. And Southern Democrats are very upset about this in the late 1870s and early 1880s. They complain constantly about the troops that remain in the South. Uh, so it's a myth. It, it sounds good, but it's a myth. <laughs> it's not actually real. Um, you know, I think one thing that's really important about the election we think about it as sort of this catastrophe, because in a lot of ways, it was sort of a, our constitution does not account for this. We don't know how right. to deal with this problem. But in fact, Republicans would have won the election without voter suppression. There is no chance that they would have lost in these three states, given how many black voters there were. Now, there was fraud in the election, on both sides. Fraud was actually a pretty common problem in the 19th century. Uh, and, the, and the reason for this is the mechanisms of voting were very different. You didn't, for example, go to the polls and fill out a ballot the way we do today. You would bring a ballot with you and deposit it at the voting site, uh, which made fraud much more possible. 
And so this is, this is the way things worked in the 19th century. You would, you would um, typically cut out a ticket, a party ticket, from the newspaper and bring it with you. And newspapers were controlled by partisans. So you would have a Republican newspaper, you would have a Democratic newspaper, and people would cut them out and bring it. This allowed for all kinds of fraud. Wow. Uh, so it was very common in the 19th century. <laughs> the changes at the end of the end of the 19th century, we get the Australian ballot is what it's called, which is what we have today. But it, it was a totally different world in the 19th century. <laughs> Uh, so, of course, you know, what, what impacts did the, the results of this election then have on you know, our country and especially black citizens in the South, black Americans in the South? Yeah, so I think um, that there are sort of short term consequences in that there is a degree to which, um, you know, there there is a continued abandonment of uh, reconstruction or the radical program of reconstruction that had been implemented by Congress in the years before. So um, the 14th Amendment, uh, which grants citizenship, the 15th Amendment, which grants the right to vote, uh, thinking about civil rights, there's sort of a, um, a, a willingness to sort of let it go among some Northerners and a focus on other kinds of issues, particularly these issues involving the economy. And so this is a continuation of that, uh, even though Hayes is 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 still pretty um, concerned about black voters and and is not abandoning them in the way that we think. But long term, of course, uh, white Southerners are emboldened. They continue this program of voter suppression and white supremacy. Uh, and Jim Crow becomes the order of the day in the um, future years. So as a result of the election, it's it's sort of a continuation rather than a um, a stoppage of uh, what had been developing in the past. However, I would say, had Tilden been elected, it would have been even more of a sharp decline in support for Reconstruction programs. So, you know, at, in a way, we have to be glad at this moment that Hayes continues on, uh, that huh. the Republicans remain in power even though it's a major catastrophe in American right. history on a constitutional level. Um, and, and Congress tries to fix this in future years. They, they passed something called the Electoral Count Act in 1887, which is what guides our election process today uh, and creates, and Congress continues to create mechanisms like a safe harbor date for the Electoral College uh, and other ways of sort of making sure this kind of catastrophe doesn't happen again. Uh, but you know, that's the problem. The problem is that our constitution does not have a mechanism for how to deal with this. <laughs> they just didn't think about it. They couldn't think of it all. <laughs> no, they couldn't. They couldn't. I, you know, it's a, it's such a funny thing because the Electoral College is such an, you know, a critical part of, of sort of our, our election mechanisms. Uh, but even the founders were, were a little like, oh, this doesn't work the way we were expecting. Uh, and there were many, many, many attempts in the 19th century to get rid of the Electoral College. Uh, this was not something that like everybody accepted and said, okay, this is cool. We're going to keep going with this. Uh, and this is true all the way through the 20th century, you know, into the 1970s. So the Electoral College causes a lot of problems yes. <laughs> in this election, though, again, you know, if if the Electoral College hadn't existed and all of this voter suppression had, Tilden would have won. Right. Um, so it's a complicated election for so many, yeah. for so many reasons. So at the end of the day, I have to ask all, uh, all of our guest experts, if you had to pick one person or 
concept, it can be a concept, to blame for the mess that was the election of 1876, who or what would that be? I think it's a tie. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, my, tie my tie would be the founders uh, who created a system that was that didn't, didn't account for this, right? You know, um, the Constitution just did not have the, the capacity to deal with this kind of problem. And so that's sort of the long-term cause. And then, of course, uh, Southern Democrats, white Southern Democrats, and the white supremacist violence that they engage in, you know, a, a, across the 19th and 20th century. And, you know, former slaveholders who had been uh, holding Black people in bondage for years and years and years, for hundreds of years. And then the continuation of these white supremacist policies uh, and violence against Black Americans in, in the election itself uh, and going forward. Well, Dr. Sheldon, I'm so glad we had you on our show. I, I wish you had been a teacher of mine. Oh. I want to take your class. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome anytime. <laughs> I just might show up when the pandemic is over. All right. <laughs> We'd love to have you. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I feel like we learned a lot today. Thank you so much to both of our guest experts. Uh, I guess we should have given the the founding big boys a slap in our election episode. Uh, but you know what? It's not like they haven't been slapped before. Tune in next week. We are going to be discussing who's to blame for the death of disco. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.